1: Coming up, Marina Hyde on the plight of a constantly aggrieved and very particular subsection of male celebrity. Columnist Zoe Williams asks, why has Britain fallen in love with Botox? Journalist Gabby Hinsliff explores the big British burnout. And finally, writer Ellen E. Jones meets Oscar-winning actor Viola Davis to talk about her new film, The Woman King. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, it seems that the great affliction of our age makes men believe they have been cancelled by the BBC, while they are literally on the BBC. This week, Marina Hyde writes about this curiosity that just won't go away. Read by Daniela Isaacs.
3: How very interesting to hear John Cleese explain how he'd be immediately cancelled or censored on the BBC in comments made freely and at considerable length on Monday in the marquee 8.10am interview slot on the BBC's flagship Radio 4 news programme. Explaining why he was about to become a presenter on GB News, the 82-year-old declared loftily... The BBC have not come to me and said, Would you like to have some one-hour shows? And if they did, I would say, Not on your Nelly, because I wouldn't get five minutes into the first show before I'd been cancelled or censored. To which the only possible response is, Morning, Major! These days, Cleese claims to live in hotel rooms, a bit on the nose, but there you go, and evidently boasts a lively range of views. In the strictest interest of accuracy, we should note that he was recently given a whole two series of a sitcom on the BBC, with the last episode of Hold the Sunset broadcast in 2019, a few months before the pandemic hit. Furthermore, it was barely a month ago that Cleese was tweeting, GB News is sometimes referred to rather wittily as KGB News. To what extent is GB News influenced by Russian interests? I don't know, but perhaps it's a matter that could be explored on his new GB news show. We're told anything goes. For now, what seems clear is that Cleese suffers one of the great afflictions of our age, a kind of delusional broadcast disorder that can make the sufferer believe they have been cancelled by the BBC even while they are literally on the BBC. The worst part of it is that we are not allowed to discuss this social sickness because of political correctness. I tried to tell my husband about it at breakfast yesterday. He works at the BBC, but he told me to be quiet so he could listen to John Cleese on the BBC. Like Cleese, I had been silenced. In any rational world, you'd be able to state the obvious reality. The condition is overwhelmingly suffered by men. But you can't say it, you can't say it. You can look at Cleese or Noel Edmonds or Nigel Farage or Lawrence Fox, but you're banned from saying what you see. You have to pretend that women are out there every five minutes wanging on about how they're not allowed to have a primetime show forever, as well as a bus pass or leadership of a political party, and how their only alternative option is presenting hours of gloriously bitter live telly every week on one of our bazillion-pound news attainment channels. In a sane world, you'd be allowed to say scientific facts, like the fact that 90% of heroically whinging BBC counselees are men. 95% of them are acrimoniously divorced, and 110% of them have divorced energy. Obviously, it's not all previously primetime men. Mr Blobby has behaved with perfect dignity. Yet you can't say it. You'd get cancelled in seconds. In fact, I don't even know how I'm writing this next sentence. Pity me. In my incredibly vulnerable position as a newspaper columnist, I have to think about this stuff constantly. Constantly. I once described a soon-to-launch TV news channel as sure to become unmoored from facts. And its CEO voided his pram of all toys... He spent rather a lot of time to and froing with the reader's editor, demanding some mean words be changed before handing Press Gazette a copy of his very grand letter to The Guardian, which was also subsequently published by The Guardian. In it, he explained, we are absolutely committed to our mission to report news in the most accurate and balanced way we can. It is unfortunate that your article failed to adhere to this basic principle. The channel in question? Why? It was GB News. Don't get me wrong, I was and am still hugely amused by Angelo Frangopoulos, the adorable little Aussie snowflake who wrote that letter. But imagine how I felt last week when I saw his channel had given a guest spot to Naomi Wolf, who hasn't been playing with a full deck of data points since the noughties. Wolf's appearance was essentially a very, very long diatribe against the COVID vaccine. Her assertion that mass murder has taken place was bolstered by the GB news presenter Mark Stein, explaining that vaccines cause every conceivable kind of damage. Other lowlights of Naomi's appearance, which was allowed to proceed without a single piece of disinformation being questioned, the claim that Covid vaccinations were bioweapons that were sterilising people and poisoning breast milk. Also, civil society has been wholly co-opted by bad actors trying to destroy British civil society. Wolfe went on, entirely unchallenged, to compare today's medical establishment to the eugenicists and exterminators of the Third Reich. Stein just nodded along repeatedly, going, yeah. Presumably in the most accurate and balanced way he could. He booked her again the very next night. Anyway, a fun new stablemate for John Cleese. Cleese famously decided that the Brexit debate saw this country sink to the lowest intellectual level ever, so I strongly urge him to push that envelope and book Wolf on his first show. In the meantime, those of us saddened by a former idol's comic decline should comfort ourselves that some of the best recent comedy has happened on GB News... Last year on the Free Speech Channel, presenter Guito Hari took the knee live on air, got suspended for it, quit and was soon made Prime Minister Boris Johnson's comms chief. The whole batshit saga was easily funnier than anything Cleese has done since A Fish Called Wanda, 1988. And we must look forward to his promising new show, In That Spirit.
1: That was... Delusional Broadcast Disorder has claimed its latest victim, John Cleese, by Marina Hyde. Read by Daniela Isaacs. Next. Increasing numbers of people in Britain are using Botox, and they're happy to admit it. But what does it feel like to freeze your forehead? Does anyone notice, and can it change how you feel about yourself? Columnist Zoe Williams goes above and beyond to get us some answers. Read by Sophie Mercel.
4: Although botulinum toxin A was first approved in the US in 1989 for the treatment of eye muscle disorders, Botox wasn't Hollywood approved to address the ravages of time until around the mid-90s. It was frowned on initially, though naturally not by the celebrities who'd had it, as they could no longer frown. Directors will complain that actors couldn't properly emote having disabled half their muscles. It's a risk, Dr Miriam Adabib says, as she hovers with a needle over my forehead ready to give me my first jab, at Victor and Garth, the East London clinic she co-founded with Dr Lauren Hamilton. If it goes a little bit too far, you start to have a slightly dead look. You smile and there's a lack of warmth that goes with that. Your facial expressions are not matching how you feel. I have no personal anxiety at all. Adabib is a surgeon who left the NHS exhausted by the pandemic and its aftermath. I've never had so much anatomical expertise pointed squarely at my face. By the noughties, the aesthetic treatment was widely available to the general population. Dentists could administer it after a day-long course, though it wouldn't be until 2018 that Superdrug would start offering it. Consumer forecasters were anticipating a million strong market by 2020, which turned out to be pretty close. By 2021, the estimate was that 900,000 injections were carried out a year in Britain, though some of those will be to the same people. Nevertheless, it was viewed with suspicion that was twofold. One, that it was a self-indulgent vanity. Two, that it looked very unnatural particularly if used repeatedly over time. Whenever a star appeared shiny in a photo, she was considered a Botox tragedy, even though, looking back, she might just have been sweating. None of these preconceptions were necessarily wrong. It is quite a lot of money to spend on your face if you're just a regular citizen whose face isn't their passport. Injections in one or two areas will cost between £200 and £300 now, but regulation in the sector is sparse, so it could easily have cost you the same or more 10 years ago. I spoke to one woman, Jay, who was charged £260 for two injections in 2010 when she had just turned 30. Over time, treatments got more refined, prices stabilised and attitudes changed. Emma, 51, had her first treatment at 45. I was becoming quite aware of ageing, she says. I went under the radar and didn't really tell people. But if someone asked me directly, I wouldn't lie. I wouldn't say, no, no, I just drink a lot of water. She has noticed two changes over these six years. First, practitioners have refined the dose so you don't feel as if you have a really heavy frozen forehead afterwards. Second, everyone is having it. It's really standard in the UK. Once you've had it done, you can identify it in others. If I see a woman my age with very dewy looking skin, she's had work. In reality, a 50-year-old woman that doesn't look tired has had something dumb. Adverse effects were rare, to judge from the reported incidents. 188 adverse reactions reported to regulators over 29 years. Although a study last year concluded that there were many more incidents of bruising, headaches and temporary muscle freeze that went unreported. The American model Chrissy Teigen distilled the spirit of the 2010s when she said, everything about me is fake, apart from my cheeks. Fake, fake, fake. It's the spirit of the digital native, really. Let's just stop pretending that these faces, these bodies, these lives we're showing each other are real. We all know what goes into them. Lindsay Stark, age 46, was Botox-curious, but still had last century's preconceptions. I thought it was reserved for the glamorous, and I suppose I had a vision of frozen celebrities who'd ended up looking really abnormal. At 41, she mentioned to a friend she was thinking about it, and she said, "'Oh, I've been having it done for ages.'" Stark didn't tell her partner, and he didn't notice – and then after a few times, she did tell him, and now he does notice. Or maybe he just says that. The more recent trend, though, is for baby Botox, or preventive, or barely there. Subtle injections for the under 35s that stop the rot before it starts. So, along with old timers coming round to the idea of Botox and sloughing off its taboo, it is no wonder the market is booming. Botox, along with dermal fillers, now accounts for 9 out of 10 cosmetic procedures. Chloe MacDonald, The Guardian's deputy fashion and lifestyle editor, breaks it down into three main groups. First, women in their mid 40s to mid 50s catching up with the advances that have made Botox more subtle and less celeb. Second, Women in their 30s being a lot more open in general and also a lot more into luxury high-tech treatments. Everyone uses retinol, LED face masks, injectables, non-injectables, microneedling. And finally, women in their 20s having Botox in this age-prevention spirit, their attitude to injectables and fillers fueled to an extent by the Love Island vibe, which is socially frank – they'll tend not to hide any work, and aesthetically fake. The big lips, the plump cheeks, the no expression. How on earth could Botox prevent wrinkles in the future, though, when the injections themselves last only three months? And before we answer that, which we can, by the way, does it really make any difference? Adebib asked me at the start what my current skincare routine was, and I replied, I wash my face. With anything? A flannel. No moisturiser, no sunscreen, no soap, no serum, no unguents of any kind. Call me the radical control experiment and not in the sense of, does anything make any difference? We can answer that really easily. My sister uses everything under the sun and she looks younger than me, even though she's older a fact of which I like to make constant public record. What I mean is, I don't really mind where I get injected and I'm not overly invested in whether or not at 49 I'm too far gone for it to work. The most common three areas for Botox are the frown lines, the forehead creases and the crow's feet. Some lines I want to keep. I earned those deep creases with my hard thoughts. Not all of the results, Adabib says, will be obvious. The little trio of muscles responsible for bringing the eyebrows in and down when you relieve them of their duties, it causes the inside of the eyebrows to slightly elevate. So you don't necessarily get rid of your frown lines. You just look fresher, like you've had a super good night's sleep. The way it works, she says. I can't recommend enough getting this done by a doctor. They're so plausible is that it's injected into certain muscle groups and it stays in that area for just three days, during which it disrupts the receptor where the nerve comes to speak to the muscle. Over the following two weeks, you will find it harder and harder to make that expression. By two weeks, you've got your full response. On day 10, something weird happened i just dropped off the kids and was pulling out of my ex-husband's Crescent, which is always a nightmare. People don't let you out because it's covered in signs saying Private Road and they think, screw you, rich person. But a grey van actually reversed a bit on an A-road to beckon me out. And this happened again and again. Other drivers were nicer. Someone picked something up for me in Tesco. Someone else made a friendly remark about my trainers, and I swear to God, it's not because I look younger, it's because I'm not scowling. And this is an effect that can be seen through two windscreens. I didn't speak to a single person who didn't think Botox had made them look less forbidding. I'd catch myself when I was driving, Stark says, in the rearview mirror and think, why am I frowning? I'd be sitting at traffic lights trying to stretch out my forehead with my fingers. This year, researchers at the University of California, San Diego, released a study showing anxiety levels were between 20% and 70% lower in people who have had Botox, within the three months that it's effective. It feels slightly iffy because of that range. 20 to 70 is quite the tolerance band. But the data set was big more than 40,000, and the proposition itself is credible. If the face you see in the mirror or reflected in a shop window is agreeable and not dissatisfied, it could plausibly make you less self-critical in minute increments many times a day. Dr. Michael Riley, a facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C., recently posited a more physiological effect. When you can't furrow your brow or show the emotions of concern or fear or panic, there is likely a calming effect on the nerve pathways that feed back to your brain that then allow you to actually not feel that emotion quite as much. I now genuinely can't frown. All I can do is kind of Wiggle my eyebrows like a children's entertainer. By day 12, I was spending time with a work experience kid and she said my forehead looked like an egg. Because she still has a full range of facial expression, I saw a trace of anxiety cross her face. A beautiful egg, she amended. This interrupts the common narrative around beauty procedures that they prey on people's insecurities while simultaneously jacking up the grooming standards that make people feel insecure in the first place. In 2019, the Joint Council for Cosmetic Practitioners instructed its members to check before they administered Botox that their patients weren't seeking it for reasons of poor mental health. I found that out after I had it, so when Adabib asked... Are you anxious or depressed? Do you currently hate yourself? I was incredibly surprised. In a salon that smelled like berries with this elegant, lineless expert, a really fun photographer and her beefy assistant, I was having the time of my life. I thought that was obvious. As with anything that may enhance or deplete your mental health, depending on the study, MDMA, marriage it's the young that people worry about. I'm a bit agnostic about that since the construction of youth as a state of vulnerability in and of itself is fundamentally bogus. The much more pressing question is, does Botox do anything for the under 35s? Because if not, then baby Botox is just a rip-off. It helps if we understand how it works. All Botox does is prevent the degradation of your natural collagen, Adabib says. Because you're relaxing the muscles that are constantly pulling on the skin, each time the muscle pulls on the skin, the elasticity decreases. It's crunching down on the collagen over and over, and that's degrading your collagen. The wrinkle is just a symptom of the depleted collagen, not the cause so you don't have to wait for it to appear indeed it's probably better to preempt it sidebar here there's no point having only botox there are several ingredients that are shown in studies to change your skin at a cellular level adabib says vitamins a c and e at a minimum vitamin b is very important vitamin d is also quite important topically, not just from diet. But your diet should also be strong on all the vegetables of the rainbow, she adds, and maybe don't smoke or drink so much. The new celebrity trend meanwhile is Botox everywhere, in your hands, in your knees. There are so many areas that are just dead giveaways for ageing. I asked Adabib whether she had ever injected anywhere except the face and she said only as a surgeon, in the anus. And I started laughing, and she, because she's a doctor and not some kind of halfwit, did not laugh at the word anus and continued. It's very hard to heal a wound around the sphincter because the muscles are so tight. By now, I was really laughing hard, and the fact that she still wasn't laughing and would never laugh just made it worse. And I momentarily started panicking that I was never going to stop laughing. Not to worry, said a voice inside, you won't get any laughter lines. The anti-anxiety effect had already begun.
1: That was Why Has Britain Fallen In Love With Botox? There Is Only One Way To Find Out by Zoe Williams Read by Sophie Mercell We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Weekend Now, first smartphones made work inescapable Then came the pandemic Finally, we are facing a cost-of-living crisis We are more overstretched and stressed than ever before But there's a way out of burnout, says Gabby Hinsley. This piece is read by Daniela Isaacs Some names
3: have been changed in this article Amy Gandon rarely does things by halves. Naturally energetic, she thrives on feeling as if she's making a difference at work. When the pandemic hit, she was working in Whitehall as a senior civil servant and found herself putting in 14-hour days on the government's COVID response. At first, she thought it was normal to feel constantly exhausted. When you're working in an emergency situation, lots of feelings that might prefigure burnout constant adrenaline, racing thoughts, racing heartbeat a lot of the time, feeling I couldn't switch off at night, are indistinguishable from what I thought I should be feeling in that context, says Gandon, now 32. I thought that was part of being professional and responsible. I do care a lot. I want to work hard. She found it hard to let go at the end of the day, worrying over whether there was something more she could have done. There are big consequences to this stuff. It's not easy. Even when she started to feel emotionally detached, she didn't suspect burnout. It was only after a panic attack so severe she thought she was dying that she realised something was wrong. Ironically, she says, her doctor went off sick with burnout shortly after signing her off work. Burnout used to be a furtive secret, something few dared admit for fear of being judged professionally. Not anymore. When the 25-year-old singer Sam Fender cancelled several gigs last month declaring that me and the boys are burnt out, he kick-started a public conversation about burnout. Shortly afterwards, the 22-year-old Brit Award winner Arlo Parks also scrapped some of her tour dates announcing, I am broken. Generation Z, raised to be open about mental health, may find it easier than older employees to admit to feeling overwhelmed and unable to carry on, but they're not the only ones at risk. A recent paper on midlife crises from the National Bureau of Economic Research concluded that the maximum level of work stress is reached at approximately the age of 45. Middle age often brings hefty responsibilities, but also nagging questions about whether the years of slog were worth it, or how much longer you can maintain this pace. For work itself is becoming more intense – following us home inside our phones, or piling up in jobs where those who leave don't get replaced. The prevailing mood of rolling economic crisis – first the banking crash, then a pandemic, now an inflation shock – probably hasn't helped our anxiety levels either. In Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, the American journalist Anne Helen Peterson argues that insecure jobs and housing have left the under-40s feeling frazzled and precarious, fearful of everything coming crashing down. For her contemporaries, she argues, burnout is foundational, the best way to describe who we've been raised to be. Rising interest in a four-day week, the popularity of working from home, and the alleged vogue for quiet quitting, refusing to go above and beyond professionally, meanwhile all suggest a broader yearning for less-stressed working lives. Liz Truss may consider Britain a nation of idlers, but we're hardly unique in mutinying, with a recent study by management consultants Deloitte across 10 countries showing 53% of women felt their stress levels were higher than a year ago, and almost half felt burnt out. Are we nearing the end of our tether? Burnout was only formally recognised by the World Health Organisation in 2019. Not as an illness, but an occupational health phenomenon resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. If work isn't the cause of your stress, however bad that stress is, for the World Health Organization, it's not strictly burnout. Their definition combines feeling drained of energy, becoming less professionally effective, and crucially feeling cynical, negative, or distant from your job. The nurse who is too jaded to feel for their patients, or the war correspondent numb to atrocities are classic examples. When pressure exceeds your ability to cope with it, that's stress and burnout, says Professor Kerry Cooper, Professor of Organisational Psychology at the University of Manchester. The first sign that you're getting burnt out is your behaviour begins to change. If normally you were fairly affable, you lose your sense of humour, or at meetings when you are usually engaged, you're quiet. Taking a holiday doesn't help. You still feel jaded when you get back. Cooper agrees there's a difference between this kind of burnout and use of the word to describe a broader sense of millennial anxiety. Being disenchanted is what we're seeing in that generation. I think they're looking for something different from work. But that doesn't, he insists, make them lazy. It may be that watching their parents' generation work all hours only to be cut loose by employers in a downturn has simply convinced them that slavish loyalty doesn't pay. They're prepared to work hard, these kids. It's not that they want to be protected or they just want things their own way, he says. They're saying to us that the older generation put up with this, but they won't. And in the long run, he argues, they're probably doing everyone a favour. If you consistently work long hours, you will get ill. Anything over 40 hours a week is not good for you. Like anxiety and depression, burnout seems more commonly reported by women than men, although it's unclear whether that's specific to female working lives and the fact women typically still carry more of the domestic load, or because it's harder for men to admit they're struggling. Jeremy, a now-retired lawyer, thinks in retrospect his burnout was partly fuelled by his reluctance to complain about overwork. Perhaps at some level I liked being the only one who could sort things out. But in retrospect, he wishes he'd been more willing to push back, not burn the midnight oil and my health. The term burnout was coined in 1974 by the American psychologist Herbert Freudenberger to describe the consequences of stress plus high levels of dedication in caring professions like health and social work, jobs women statistically more often do. Last summer, the House of Commons Health Select Committee reported that burnout is a widespread reality in today's NHS and had been building up well before the pandemic, with BAME staff risking additional challenges due to discrimination. Aisha was working as a consultant paediatrician in a busy Welsh hospital when Covid hit. After the initial terror of infection came an endless cycle of testing and isolating, plus nagging anxiety about her patients. Redeployed from her usual ward to A&E, she was out of her professional comfort zone. Her shifts changed constantly as colleagues went down with COVID, meaning she could rarely relax. It was the complete lack of being able to plan even a weekend off, constantly being vigilant or feeling obliged to be available. That was tough, plus the constant undercurrent of anxiety about what if a child seriously sick with COVID comes in. She started feeling frustrated with parents bringing children in for relatively minor complaints and ground down by treating problems that seem more social than medical. I was seeing the same families time and time again and nothing was changing. It was to do with the situation they were in. When she eventually quit, she felt immediate relief. She's currently planning to go travelling with her partner, although the sense of wasting her medical training weighs on her conscience. It is striking how often burnout sufferers talk not just about their workloads, but the emotional weight of responsibility they feel. Denise Willier is a Brighton-based business coach for female entrepreneurs who came close to burning out a decade ago when working as the CEO of a small charity for the elderly. We were always in a constant financial juggle, grants coming to an end, does that mean I'm going to have to let staff go? If I didn't come up with the goods, I was going to have to make really awful decisions, she remembers. The stress got so bad she was hyperventilating at work. But as the boss, she felt unable to tell anybody. You've got to be seen to hold it all together, particularly as a woman. You can't turn up not looking on your game. Far from being weak, she says, the burnout sufferers she has encountered tend to be unusually diligent high performers the type of person who pushes towards achieving things and maybe has a bit of a tendency towards perfectionism. Ironically, these traits – drive, commitment, not wanting to let other people down, persevering when others wouldn't – are one's employer's value highly. As Willier points out, that gives companies who don't want to lose their best people good reasons to help prevent burnout. There are glimmerings of change in some infamously work-hard, play-hard industries, including tech. Twitter has instigated a paid monthly hashtag day of rest for staff, and the merchant bank Goldman Sachs has offered free Pelotons and fitness packages to some of its analysts, following complaints of overwork. But Cooper, who runs a forum of major employers interested in occupational health, says millennials would rather feel consistently valued and supported than have gimmicks like mindfulness sessions or sushi delivered to their desk. The best thing anyone at risk of burnout can do, he says, is talk to someone a trusted friend, colleague or health professional, which is why employers are increasingly offering free confidential counselling or appointing corporate directors of well-being to encourage conversations about mental health at work. But what if yours isn't so enlightened? In Can't Even, Peterson writes angrily that her contemporaries won't be fobbed off with advice on managing their own stress because this isn't a personal problem. It's a societal one, and it will not be cured by productivity apps or a bullet journal or face mask skin treatments. She rails too against advice to do what you love for a career, arguing it trains people to see work as a passion for which they should sacrifice everything. A good job, she writes, is one that doesn't exploit you and you don't hate, even if it's not exciting. Yet settling for something duller but easier seems a rather dispiriting solution. I can't relate to that way of working, where you just work the hours and then you finish and completely compartmentalise the job, says Joy Parkinson, age 32, who suffered burnout while working in arts communication in Glasgow. If the majority of your life is spent working, it's a real shame if people don't love their job. She began struggling during the pandemic, as lockdown forced live performances to close or pivot online. Working alone from her one bedroom flat, glued to the news to try and figure out what was and wasn't allowed, she felt stuck in some form of working constantly, but also in a kind of limbo. I didn't understand how we were ever going to get back to a normal life. Her managers were really helpful when she told them she was struggling, easing the workload on her entire team. But in the end, she went freelance, which gives her the freedom to take breaks between contracts. When we speak over Zoom, she's in Greece following a hectic summer working on the Edinburgh Festival. Doing a course of cognitive behavioural therapy has also given her tools to manage anxiety, if it strikes again. Self-employment isn't for everyone, however, and few of us can afford to quit our jobs in a cost-of-living crisis. Employers are legally obliged to take reasonable steps to mitigate work-related stress, such as referring you to occupational health, and if it's making you ill, you can be signed off work by a doctor, as you would be for any other physical illness. If you're worried you might be nearing burnout, Willia recommends not just talking to managers about easing workload, but making time for exercise. Yoga and dance classes worked for her. And asking honestly whether you're shouldering more responsibility than you need to, at work or at home. I felt the whole burden was on me. If I look back now, I can see why I felt that, but it actually wasn't. If you've already burnt out, meanwhile, it's worth knowing that recovery and a successful return is possible. Claudia, a 40-year-old mother of two working in external affairs, says it helps to remember that it isn't a personal failing, but a physical reaction to pressure, much like breaking an ankle, You can't carry on, and if you force yourself, you are going to make it worse. When her doctor signed her off with burnout, she says her boss suggested she ignore the medical advice and carry on. Instead, she quit, and after taking several months out to recover, is now working again for a company with a more supportive culture. She has also, she says, learned to pace herself. I have a discipline now that's right, I'm going to knock some things off the to-do list rather than trying to do it all. It's incremental things. Take one thing out of the diary. Cancel one meeting. Don't let your mum come over at the weekend. The catch, of course, is that for the kind of highly driven employees potentially most at risk from burnout, however, is that slowing down doesn't always come easily. Amy Gandon, who eventually quit her job last summer, is now running a research project on stress and burnout among civil servants. Recovery has felt frustratingly slow at times, she says, and she had to force herself to rest. But she's now looking forward to returning to a full-time job this autumn. I'd always be the person who wanted to throw myself at stuff, and maybe I had to learn a hard lesson to pace myself better. Not like I'm going to make sure I leave at 6pm tonight, but actually saying no to things. And that's uncomfortable, she admits but it may be more sustainable in the long run, perhaps, than always saying yes.
1: That was I Didn't See How I Could Ever Get Back to a Normal Life, How Burnout Broke Britain and How It Can Recover by Gabby Hinsliff. Read by Daniela Isaacs. Finally, Raised in Poverty, the actor Viola Davis has conquered Hollywood, winning an Oscar, an Emmy and two Tony Awards. Now she has brought her passion project to the screen. The Woman King's epic tale of an elite female fighting force. Writer Ellen E. Jones sits down with her to find out more. Read by Jeanette Robinson. A heads up that Viola talks about times she experienced sexual abuse when she was a child, which might be
0: upsetting. Viola Davis is tired. I know because she has told me. Let me just be honest. I'm tired, she says at one point with all the heartfelt emphasis of those Academy Award-winning eyes. But I also know because I've seen her latest film, and anyone would be tired after pulling that off. The Woman King is an 1820 set, action-packed historical epic about the Agoji, the all-female warrior unit of the Kingdom of Dahomey, which once existed in what is now Benin. Davis gives a performance of phenomenal physical and emotional power as a goji general, Naniska. Her co-stars include Star Wars' John Boyega as King Gezu, but while he spends most of the film peacocking around the palace, the women are out doing bloody battle. The fight choreography is thrilling, and the then 56-year-old Davis did nearly all her own stunts. In preparation, Davis and her female castmates, including erstwhile 007 Lashana Lynch and Tuso Mbedu, the fast-rising star of Barry Jenkins's The Underground Railroad, embarked on a rehearsal period like no other. I mean, I'm a woman who works out, but not like five hours a day, says Davis. Today she looks red carpet ready in a white pearlescent dress with a full face of flawless makeup and hair piled high. Only her monogrammed hotel slippers suggest she is still in recuperation mode. Me and Tuso would do choreography where we had to fight 15 or more men on a day-to-day basis. The sprinting, weightlifting, and martial arts continued, even after they had flown out to the South African shoot location, then in 30 Celsius heat. Trust me, Davis adds with a throaty chuckle, by the time I got to the last stunt, I definitely celebrated with a glass of pinotage. This eight-month warrior workout was only the most recent leg of the woman king's seven-year struggle to the screen. It's a fight, says Davis, who was also one of the film's producers through her company Juvie Productions. I call it the fight. It's a fight to find partners who have the same vision as you, who are able to give it a green light. And then the other fight, if it's a predominantly black female cast is that because we haven't led the global box office, there's no precedent that it will work and make the money back for the people who invest in it. The bottom line is money. It's not about cultural impact. It's about money. Davis says telling stories she wants to tell remains a struggle, even now. In 2016, she completed the coveted Triple Crown of Acting, an Academy Award, an Acting Category Emmy, and a Tony, or two in Davis's case, by winning the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her role opposite Denzel Washington in the 1950s drama Fences. She is the first, and to date, only black actor to do so. Only eight years earlier, she had sprung to mainstream notice with an eight-minute, single-scene Oscar-nominated turn alongside Meryl Streep in the 2008 film Doubt. And yet, she says, I can't walk into every room and get any movie made. I actually feel pretty confident, but I can't do that. But she is used to fighting for what she wants. In April, her best-selling memoir, Finding Me, revealed just how much she had to overcome in her youth. Davis grew up the second youngest of six children, amid abject poverty, racism, sexual abuse, domestic violence, and alcoholism. Living in a rat-infested, condemned building, the sisters were too terrified to go to the toilet at night, and all became chronic bedwetters. When the pipes froze over, during the merciless Rhode Island winters, they had no way to clean themselves and had to go to school smelling of urine, only to face more bullying. Davis says she and all her sisters were subjected to sexual assaults by relatives, babysitters, and the neighborhood dirty old men, while their parents were too caught up in their own struggle for survival to offer any protection. She has since forgiven and reconciled with them both. She calls her four sisters my platoon, while their predominantly white hometown was a minefield, where you were constantly trying to dodge little and big explosions that could level you. No wonder she feels such a personal connection to the woman king. Here's the thing. We're sisters. The Agoji are sisters. That's not the mentality of just hanging out, doing some shopping and having an apparel spritz. It's a spirit of literally going into battle. And it's for the love of each other that you're fighting. Naniska is the kind of action role that might have been all high kicks and smart quips in other hands. But Davis imbues enough authentic emotion that she is already being talked of as a contender for yet more awards. I don't see Niniska as an action hero, she says. She is a woman who is a warrior. One of the movie's most powerful moments comes from this understanding. It's in a scene at the slave market, where Niniska and her troops are meeting General Oba of the enemy Oyo Empire for what he assumes is a payment of tribute. Instead, Naniska ambushes him with an attempt to provoke a war. But just before that moment of no return, a fleeting expression of terror passes across her face. It is a physical demonstration of a line that Davis often quotes by the novelist Anne Lamott. Courage is fear said with prayers. Every time I approached Oba, Davis says, I was approaching the man who sexually assaulted me. I was not just approaching the enemy. Listen, the things that have taken the strongest human being down have been a traumatic memory that they could not fight through. Does she mean me in the method acting sense? Or is she drawing directly from her own experience? I'm talking about Naniska, but I talk about Viola in terms of facing my fears, too. Every single day. Every woman who has been sexually assaulted knows exactly what I mean at that moment. These glimpses of the human beneath the genre trappings have become a Viola Davis specialty. In the six-season TV melodrama How to Get Away with Murder, it was the moment when Davis' character, the law professor, adulterous and possible sociopath Annalise Keating, gets home after a long day of being fierce and fabulous, sits down, and takes her wig off. In Fences, it's the streaming tears and snot that Rose never wipes away as she finally offloads decades of disappointments on her husband. Davis obviously has deep respect for acting's therapeutic potential, but is more ambivalent about her formal training. She describes her four years at New York's prestigious performing arts conservatory, Juilliard, as Eurocentric, I felt I came in with a wrong palette. I was too big. I was too black. My voice was too deep. In the same breath, though, she credits Juilliard with funding her transformational first trip to Africa back in the 90s. It was in the Gambia, as she was watching a performance by the Canelang, an association of childless women, that Davis says everything clicked into place. They were just screaming, not even with any objective of singing beautifully. It was the objective of just making noise so God can hear it. In that moment, she understood what it meant to make art and what her own contribution might be. If I don't start with the palette of what is viola, then I'm doing absolutely nothing. Whether or not it's received by the masses, I cannot control. But I can control that. Davis has had her own struggles with infertility, as she details in her memoir. When she was a single woman in her early thirties, an operation to remove fibroids on her womb left her with a small window in which to get pregnant. This led to an incident, now passed into Viola Davis' lore, in which she manifested her future husband with a kenneling-like directness. God, you have not heard from me in a long time. I know you're surprised. My name is Viola Davis, she remembers saying before issuing in prayer form a dating wish list that included ex-athlete, someone real country, and someone who had a wife before me and children already, so there was no pressure to get pregnant. Three weeks later, she met the actor and producer Julius Tenen, who was all of those things. And in 2011, they adopted their daughter, Genesis. But back to the present. I'm 57 years old, Davis says, all that fatigue back in her voice. I don't have the same enthusiasm that I had at 28 or younger. When I saw Cecily Tyson for the first time, it was, wow, I can be Miss Tyson. I can be a great actress of the stage and cinema. People will just throw flowers at me. Her role in Doubt alongside Meryl Streep gave her a big lift at the age of 42 and I said, oh my God, I hit it. But that lasts for two seconds or less, because with that comes disillusionment. With that comes exhaustion. There is an emptiness that comes with fighting for success. Davis says she now understands her work not only as a means to escape poverty or attain a sense of self-worth, but as her small part of a larger struggle for justice. At the same time, I have a true understanding of my limitations as a human being. I cannot carry the weight of the past on my shoulders. I can't do that. I'm not God. What I can do is what I can do. For Davis, the fight is also about kicking open that narrow on screen box that women who look like her currently have to fit into. What is in my power to change is to show people that we are more than the stamp that people have put on dark-skinned women. That we are sexual. That we are desirable. That we can be smart. That we are way more expansive and our identity is not determined by your gaze. I can change that. I can change the way black women are seen, to some extent, within the industry. Davis knows something about that box having earned her second of four Academy Award nominations for playing a maid, some said a modern-day mammy, in 2011's civil rights-era drama The Help. The supporting cast was filled with impressive black actors, including Davis's childhood hero, Cecily Tyson, and her friend Octavia Spencer, who won an Oscar for her role. The lead, though, was white actor Emma Stone, playing a well-meaning journalist who sets out to expose her town's racism. Davis has since spoken of her regret over making the film, saying she felt she had betrayed myself and my people. Now that the woman king has finally arrived, it feels, says Davis, like a culmination of my career over the last 33 years. It is a film that could not have been made without her and represents her ascension to a whole new level. I arrived in Hollywood having hopes and dreams for my career, but never quite having ownership or agency, she says. The woman king has seemed like the ultimate gift and conduit to give me that agency. This is also a much-anticipated moment of culmination for many others besides. It is for anyone who dared hope Black Panther's success might change Hollywood. For anyone who wants period dramas to tell diverse, untold stories that confront the legacy of colonialism. And also for anyone who's ever wondered why women in action movies tend to be 20-somethings in high heels. But Liam Neeson still gets to punch through walls when he's pushing 70. Can Davis see herself doing a similar pivot towards more action roles? She gives this suggestion the kind of derisive look that Annalise Keating reserved for her most moronic law students. Oh no, no. That doesn't appeal to me at all. My body is so sore right now. That was, I
1: Can Change the Way Black Women Are Seen, Viola Davis on Stereotypes, Success, and Playing a Warrior by Ellen E. Jones. Read by Jeanette Robinson. Before we go, we wanted to tell you about the relaunch of the Guide newsletter with a new look and new features. Our free newsletter explores the worlds of TV, film, music, podcasts, books, and more. From what's happening in Westeros to who's blowing up Spotify. Join Gwilym Mumford every Friday for a weekly look at the best in pop culture through a different lens. Sign up to the Guide today at theguardian.com forward slash guide. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Daniela Isaacs, Jeanette Robinson and Sophie Marcel and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Reeves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening.
0: This is The Guardian.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?